Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, God so loved the world that he gave his life for you and me, and we have a compassionate Savior and teammate who's watching out for us today, and that changes everything. We're going through the book of Mark right now in our series, Race to the Cross. We're in the season of Lent, and we're, we're, we're following Jesus on his mission to die for our sins and rise again to give us eternal life. But first, think about this. In central Texas, there's a giant legend, literally a giant legend. At six foot 11, Tim Duncan is among the best athlete in the NBA over his 19-year career. He was drafted by San Antonio Spurs nineteen ninety seven and he spent his entire career with them, one of only three perennial all stars who stayed with his team his entire career, along with John Stockton and Kobe Bryant. Tim Duncan, as tall as he was, and as talented as he was, had a wonderful resume of accolades that you could say made him one of the best centers of all times. Not only uh, did his career go 19 years, he only came off the bench for three games. He was a 15-time NBA All-Star selection. He's top 10 in rebounds all-time, blocks all-time, and minutes played, number one all-time. He won three NBA MVP finals awards and two NBA uh, regular season MVP awards and he won over the course of his career five NBA championships the only player to win a championship in three separate decades think about that but among all the different things that he's famous for and all the accomplishments that he has one of the things that everyone would say about him from coaches to 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 his teammates to the beat writers in San Antonio was that he was a great teammate. Uh, Coach Pop said that he was always on time for practice and he was never late for the bus. And in 2014, against the Miami Heat and LeBron James in the NBA Finals, the three-time MVP actually took a supporting role because he was a compassionate teammate that knew what was best for the team. And he willingly sat the bench during key defensive sets in order for the players who could get the job done would get the job done. And that's why, quite frankly, I believe Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, and Quali Leonard became household names because they had a compassionate teammate who knew what was best for his teammates and best for the team. Have you ever had a teammate like that in your life? Or have you ever had somebody at school at work, somebody uh, in your family that knew what was best for you, that was looking out for you, that had your best intentions in mind. This morning, we're going through Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8, and I want to tell you that in life, you and I have the ultimate compassionate teammate who understands who understands you better than you understand yourself, who understands why you do the the, the things that you do that are, that are bad, but he's honest enough to call you out on them, who knows the root cause of why you do those things, 
that cause a, a rift in relationships, a rift in relationships with God, a rift in relationships with one another. And not only does he just know you and understand you, but he knows what you need and he gives you what you need so that you can have peace with God and you can have peace with others in this life. This morning, a compassionate teammate understands and it starts with Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, as we heard just moments ago, uh, we're following Jesus and he's going around Israel He's going around his own country and he's showing miraculous signs. He's, he's preaching with authority. He's driving out demons. He's healing people. He's, he, he's going viral as it is and people are coming out of the woodwork to follow him and gather around him and he can't get away from them. In fact, he tries to get away from them to be alone, to pray to his father and they still come out to him. And then that's where we pick up. Uh, Jesus in Mark chapter 7 actually leaves his country. That's right. This is the first time that we find out that he leaves Israel and he goes to a different country. He crosses the borders into the Ten Cities District. This is modern-day Jordan. And it's really known at that time as complete paganism. These people, they don't have the true teaching, let's say, of the teachers in Jerusalem. They are the ones that were infected by Queen Jezebel many years before and they'd set up temples. And, and now Jesus is going into their territory and he's preaching about the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance. And they bring to him a man who cannot speak and cannot hear. He's deaf and he's mute. And Jesus looks at the man and with compassion, he takes him outside of the town. He puts his fingers in the man's ears, it says. He spits and he puts his hand on the man's tongue, strangely enough. And immediately, just like that, the man can hear his Savior's voice. And just like that, he can speak in plain, fluent language without a speech pathologist. And the people, it says, the people of the Ten Cities District, the Ten Cities country, they were overwhelmed with amazement. And then they said to one another, this man, this Jesus, he does all things well. He even opens the mouth of those that can't talk and he opens the ears of those that cannot hear. What can't he do? Which attracted more and more attention and they began to follow him even more. In fact, Jesus is traveling around that area and the people go out to him and, and, and they start to forget about their own stomachs. They become hungry because they're so filled up with this Jesus that's teaching them and healing them. And, and Jesus looks at the crowd after three days of being far away from food and running out of food, he looks at them and he sa it says this. It says, Jesus had compassion on them. And he said, these people, if they're going to go back home, they're going to be famished and they might pass out and they might, they might even die. Jesus, the compassionate teammate, understands their hunger and this is what he does. He gathers like he did at one point in Israel, his home country, he now does in the pagan country. With 4,000 people, he gathers all the bread that they have, which is just seven loaves and a couple fish, and he puts his miracle on repeat. He gives thanks, he breaks the bread, and he gives it to all the people, and they are filled and they're satisfied. And what do you think they said after that? This man does all things well. They had to be saying that to themselves. 
Jesus, after feeding that crowd, he gets into a boat and he goes back into his home country to a place called Dalmathuna. And there, in that small town, the Pharisees, or let's say this, the religious lawyers of the time, they come out to do a quality check on this rabbi who's teaching and who's doing all these wild things. And they say to, to Jesus, Jesus, do a miracle. Do a sign. Prove to us that you are from God and you have authority to do these things. Do whatever. I mean, pull a fig tree out of a hat and make it uh, sprout jelly beans. I don't care. Show us that you're from God. Show us that you have authority. And Jesus replies back to them. He says this, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And he leaves them just like that. They get into the boat. I know there's, there's a lot going on here because Jesus is on the move. They cross the lake again. They land, and the disciples notice something. They forgot the food. They have one loaf of bread that they could find in the entire boat, and as they get out, they're embarrassed, and they're thinking to themselves, oh, man, what is Jesus going to say? <laughs> We've been trying to keep up with him this whole time, and all we have is this one loaf of bread. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing their hearts, Knowing their uncertainties is a compassionate teammate, and he knows enough to teach them about something greater than the bread that they forgot. And it's the heart issue that we're talking about today. It says this, Be careful, Jesus said. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. What? We're out of bread and you're just talking about yeast? What, you, what is this all about? Yeast is all around us. Yeast is in the air. Yeast is used most popularly to do what? To, to, to bake bread in order for it to rise. Yeast spreads. You need yeast to make beer. You need yeast to make wine. Yeast, back then, was used for all of these things, but yeast also had a negative connotation because there can be bad yeast. And when talking about yeast in the Bible, very often, like in Galatians chapter 5, Paul, the apostle, talks about yeast spreading as a disease. So you might think of it as a cancer cell. A cancer cell that, that spreads, Paul says, in, in, in its false teaching that spread, was spreading throughout the Galatian church. And Paul said a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And in the same way, Jesus is saying here, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And that of Herod. Jesus cares enough, your compassionate teammate cares enough to warn you and me about the yeast of the Pharisees. What's the yeast of the Pharisees? The Pharisees were coming to Jesus and they were saying to him, Jesus, I want you to do something for me to prove that you're God or to prove that you're good, or to prove that you have authority in my life. Have you ever had that, that, that thought? The yeast of the Pharisees that works in our hearts like a spiritual cancer. I go to church, and I give my money, I give my tithe, I give my offering. I'm better than most people. God, therefore, I should be blessed like A, B, and C. Or I should get this, that, and the other thing because I'm more religious than other people. Jesus is warning you and me, religious people, the people that are in church, about the yeast of the Pharisees. 
Like God's some sort of divine vending machine that I put in my time and then I can hit F3 and get what I want from God. It's like, it's like we're worshiping God to get something out of God, which is really not worshiping God anymore. What is it? It's worshiping myself, not God. Be careful for the yeast of the Pharisees that works in your hearts. You have a compassionate teammate who understands your misguided, your misplaced hungers. And it's not just the yeast of the Pharisees, because I'm talking to you and me, the religious people in a church on a Sunday. He also says to his disciples, watch out for the yeast of Herod. Who's Herod? Was he a religious guy? Was Herod a good guy? Okay, Herod is an impulsive guy, a secular man. Just a couple chapters before this, he invites all of his buddies over to his house. They get drunk, and they invite a girl to dance in front of them. He's acting on impulse, on what feels right, on what he wants in the moment, and in a moment, he tries to brag to his friends after this girl dances in front of him, I'll give you up to half my kingdom to the girl. And what happens when he does that, the result is that he beheads John the Baptist, which he immediately regrets. He wakes up out of the drunken stupor and he says, what did I do? Watch out for the yeast of that of Herod. He's talking to you and me, secularists, the people that find ourselves in the moment saying, I'm going to do what I feel like I want to do, and I'm just going to throw off God, and I'm going to throw off his, his commands, and I'm going to live the way that I want to live. And by the way, folks, this is the wallpaper of our society today. It's in the background of everything. Live for how you want to live, when you want to live, and what you want to do with your own body, and do it at your own will. Throw God off. And at the, at the heart of it is really the same thing. The two yeasts, the yeast of the Pharisee and the yeast of of that of Herod are, are, are rejecting God. You can reject God in one of two ways. You can reject God by keeping all the rules in order to tell God what you want him to do. Or you can reject God by throwing off all the rules and saying, I'm going to live the way I want to live and you're not going to tell me what to do. It's the yeast that works. It's the spiritual disease and cancer in the heart that Jesus, your compassionate teammate cares enough for you, says, I understand, but I'm here to call you out on it. We have a teammate that doesn't just call us out on it, but a teammate that understands our misplaced hungers, and he also understands where they come from. Because if it's, an, if it's one thing just to say you have a problem, but I'm not going to tell you the root cause of it, that, that's not a, a compassionate teammate. But Jesus keeps on teaching his disciples in verse 17. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, he's talking now about that original multiplication in the land of Israel for his own people. How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not 
understand. That word understand in the Greek is suinami, and it means to reason along with. Are you, are you picking up what Jesus is laying down? Jesus is, is saying to his disciples, listen, you're worried about just having this one piece of bread, but you have a fuzzy memory. There's something deeper than just misaligned and misplaced hungers. There's a deeper trust issue with Jesus. Do you remember when there was no bread before what happened and what I did? Or do you forget so fast? How about you? How about me? When, when the food was in the pantry and, the, and we were living a little closer to the belt, maybe during a freeze in the past couple of years, maybe a little worried about whether we were going to be taken care of do you not understand that Jesus saw you through it? And he's going to see you through today. And maybe in our finances, it's getting a little tight, and maybe right now in your life, you're feeling the pressure of inflation and other things happening in your life. Do you not remember that Jesus, he clothes the lilies of the field, so how much more would he clothe you, has clothed you? Have you forgotten about his providence in the past? Is goodness today in your life? Or how about that sin that you're trying to shake off, that you can't shake off, that you've, you've, you've tried to again and again and, and you, you come crushed before him and you, do you not remember that his promises of forgiveness and grace and mercy are there today just like they were before? Do you not understand, Jesus is saying, you see, it's not just that he can point out our misplaced hungers, but he can get down to the root issue. And the root issue is this. It's a trust issue. It's a trust issue. He understands that our soul is diseased. We have a diseased soul. Which leads us to the final question. What can we do about it? What should we do about it? Michael Jordan once said, or at least he was quoted to say, it takes talent to win games. It takes teamwork to win championships. In context of today and in what we're learning, I'm going to say this. It takes talent to point out the disease, but it takes a savior to heal it. Because Jesus not only has the talent to come to you and me and the world, and say, you have a problem. You have misplaced hungers. You've been affected by the yeast of the Pharisees. You've been affected by the yeast of, the, of Herod. Now, here's what you need to, need to do to fix it. No, he doesn't do that, because we can't fix it. There's a deeper problem that's the heart issue. Jesus comes and he says, I've come to fix it, which makes him more than just a teammate. It makes him our Savior. And his job was to go to that cross and take care of the deeper heart issue, to heal the sin-sick soul, to heal the sin-diseased soul where the cancer had spread, to wipe it completely away, and to realign our hungers for him. I wonder when the, the disciples finally got it. Have you ever thought about that? 
Jesus is teaching them this whole time, and they keep missing it, and they keep missing it, and they don't understand. Do you think they got it when he died on the cross? I don't know if they got it then. Do you think they got it when he was raised from the dead and he appeared to them many times and they still were confused? I'm not sure if they really, really got it. But I do know that 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, that he sent them back to Jerusalem. And there in an upper room, he sent his spirit on them. And Peter and all the disciples, in that moment, they got it. Because they were emboldened to go to the very crowd that put Jesus onto the cross and Peter said this to them, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He heals. He heals our soul and he aligns our hungers. He goes into the places where that yeast had spread, the Pharisee yeast and the Herod yeast, and he cleans it out completely by giving his life on the cross. He goes in there and he replaces those desires that we had to live for self or to live like God's a vending machine. And he says, no, that's all forgiven forever, for free, at the cost of my own blood. But I'm not going to leave you there. A teammate never leaves another teammate where they're at, but always makes them better. And Jesus says, this is where I'm taking your old desires and I'm replacing them with new desires. And these desires look nothing like the ones before. Before you were living for yourself. You're living in the moment. You're living for the desires of the flesh. But now I'm telling you, I'm replacing my my love in that place so that your desires will be to live for other people. To put other people's needs in front of your own. To give generously and give regularly to other people that are in need. Because that's the new hunger, that's the new desire that he puts in our hearts. That instead of living like you want to get stuff out of God, you live out of pure worship of God and say, God, I'm just worshiping because of the forgiveness that you've given me and the grace that I've received, not for anything else, not expecting to get anything else. Even when crosses come into my life, I'm still going to worship. Even when I have pain in my body, I'm still going to worship. Even when there's financial distress in my life, I'm still going to worship because you're the same God that gave your life for me and is a compassionate teammate that forgives me and redeems me and replaces those cancerous cells of sin with your perfect righteousness down to the core, down to my DNA. That's what you've made me, and that's what I'm going to live for. And there's not going to be anything better that I can live for than to give a living sacrifice back to you because you're risen and you're alive today. Do you have that compassionate teammate? Do you know that compassionate teammate? Because in a couple moments, many of you will come forward to the table. And if there's any doubt in your mind that all of those misplaced hungers, that sin that you've fallen back into this week, if there's any question that he doesn't forgive you, he says, take and eat for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm with you. If there's any question that that diseased soul is not forgiven, he says, this is my body, this is my blood, the very body and blood given on the cross on Calvary made personal for you today. A compassionate teammate. 
They give, they give their life for their friend. And he's given his for you. So worship him. Worship him with your whole being, your whole self. Worship him with everything that you do from this moment all the way until you meet him in heaven. Because he's a compassionate teammate that not only replaces our hungers with his, with his love, but he gives us a place with him forever in heaven. And with that joy, we race to the cross. And we sprint another week. Amen. Amen.